Love, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. What if there were a fundamental part of the very identity of Jesus that you almost never hear about and many Christians miss? You might find this episode very enlightening as we dig into Jesus' identity as a warrior and why joining him in his fight matters so much today. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 37 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. From Genesis to Malachi, the pages of the Old Testament promise that one day the Anointed One, the Messiah, Christos, would be a warrior who would come to liberate God's oppressed people. Consider, for example, the Old Testament teaching that the Messiah would be a warrior. Here's an example we recognize from celebrating Christmas in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. For the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this day forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9 verses 2 through 7. The king who would establish this new order was understood by most Israelites to be an earthly ruler who would overthrow the enemies of Israel who routinely oppressed her. Even after Jesus' resurrection, his own disciples still seemed to expect Jesus to usher in a political military kingdom. Just before his ascension, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Despite the widespread notion that the kingship of the Messiah would be in the form of a political military state, the Messianic prophecies had always contained clues that the oppressors of God's people to be overthrown were more deadly than earthly rulers. The real oppressors the Messiah would come to overthrow would be the triumvirate that had usurped Adam's kingdom and enslaved his race, Satan, sin, and death. For example, in the Messianic prophecy mentioned above, the Messiah sets up a kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice. It is sin that must be overthrown to establish such a kingdom. Similarly, a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61 ends with, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 
The only kingdom the Messiah came to inaugurate was a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom where sin has been overthrown. Moreover, implicit in these messianic prophecies was the elimination of death as well. At the birth of Jesus, for instance, the angel said to Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Clearly, he was to be a king in the line of David. This king would reign over a kingdom that had vanquished death. It was to be an eternal kingdom. Another text which stresses the everlasting kingship of the Messiah is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This psalm is one of the most often cited Old Testament texts in the New Testament, with quotations or allusions appearing in the Gospels, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, Hebrews, and Peter's Epistles. It is especially significant that the opening verses are quoted by Paul in his argument in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four through 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul's words in this 1 Corinthians 15 passage also make clear that the Messiah's enemies in Psalm 110 were more than earthly oppressors of Israel. The enemies Christ must vanquish are death and Every rule and every authority and every power, quotes Paul, which refer to the evil angelic hosts. Hebrews 2.14 makes clear that Jesus' foe was Satan himself. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This third oppressor to be overthrown always was the evil one along with his minions. The seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. The Messiah, in other words, was a warrior. The only human warrior, God himself, come in the flesh who could free Adam's kingdom from slavery to the triumvirate, Satan, sin, and death. John the Baptist understood the Messiah to be a warrior. John the Baptist not only envisioned the Messiah as a coming king, but understood his kingdom to go far beyond the borders of Israel. He warned of the transcendent and universal judgment which would come with the appearance of the Messiah, warning his listeners to flee from the wrath to come and that the axe is laid to the foot of the trees. John shows the real enemy of God's people who needs to be vanquished by the warrior king, the Messiah, to be sin. John's concept of the messianic kingdom is further revealed by his mention of Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire, referring to the Spirit's sanctifying work of purifying human hearts. The kingship of Christ begins with the work of God's Spirit in the human heart to vanquish sin 
and purify it. The Messianic warrior king is also the second Adam who has to fight to take back Adam's kingdom. Genesis 1-3 through reports the story of the first Adam coming into the world, being tempted by Satan, surrendering to sin, and losing his kingdom to Satan's sin and death. The gospel tells the story of the second Adam. He was also made of human flesh. He was also tempted by Satan. But in his case, it was not in a lush garden surrounded by delicious fruit, but in a barren wilderness. The second Adam did not have the companionship of another human at his side, but was alone in his temptation. The second Adam was not tempted to eat fruit on a full stomach, but after 40 days of fasting when he was about to die. The second Adam was not silent in the face of Satan's lies, but responded by restating God's truth. The second Adam did not yield to Satan's temptation, but totally obeyed the high king. Because the second Adam passed his test, he defeated Satan, sin and death, winning salvation for all who are in him. 1 Corinthians 15:22 For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive Christ's resurrection proves that victory has been won thus it is written the first man Adam became a living being the last Adam became a life-giving spirit it's hard to see it in the text but Paul's contrast here is between the temporal life passed on to his descendants by the first Adam, made temporal by Adam's sin, and the everlasting life passed on to his descendants by the last Adam, made everlasting by Christ's righteous life. In summary, the kingdom won by Christ, the second Adam, is the kingdom lost by the first Adam. Christ does everything that the first Adam should have done and more. He defeats Satan's sin and death at the cross and then inaugurates his kingdom, the reign of righteousness over Adam's original kingdom. Just as the first Adam was the head of the fallen world, the second Adam is the head of a redeemed world. His perfect life and sacrificial death are the basis for a new orientation for all of creation. The scope of deliverance in Christ is magnificent Redemption is as wide as creation itself. We also can't fail to notice Jesus' role as a warrior when we look closely at what he describes as the good news, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the good news that Adam's kingdom has been set free from slavery to sin and is becoming Christ's kingdom of righteousness. The chief subject about which Jesus' disciples learned was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is one of the most central concepts in the history of Revelation. Jesus opened his public ministry with the words, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel Jesus proclaimed was not simply the good news that an individual could be delivered from an eternity in hell. It was never just the gospel of personal, private salvation. It is that, but more. The gospel has always been the gospel of the kingdom. It takes just a few texts to make this clear. 
And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 4.23. Matthew 9.35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Or Luke 8.1, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Not only do the gospel writers describe Jesus' ministry as proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, they record Jesus himself describing his preaching ministry the same way. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Furthermore, until Jesus returns, his followers are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the messianic kingdom arrives, and it means the overthrow of the kingdom of darkness. When we understand that the Messiah was a warrior come to overthrow Satan's sin and death, we understand why Satan's empire is filled with alarm. See Matthew 4.3, Mark 1.24, and Matthew 12.29. A deliverer has come to overthrow the masters whose control of Adam's kingdom had caused every ounce of human suffering. The glorious beginning of a new order where there is no longer any mourning or crying or pain has broken into human history. This king who overthrows the corruption of the fallen order caused by Adam's sin demonstrates the arrival of the new order in all he does. By his healing power, he shows that the kingdom of God reverses the curse on Adam's race and kingdom brought about by their sin. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. Human bodies broken by paralysis or disease are made whole. Even destructive forces of nature are overpowered as the wind and waves obey the voice of Jesus. The curse upon them because of Adam's sin is temporarily overcome by the command of earth's rightful king. He empowers his disciples to heal and commands them to explain that such healing is proof that the kingdom of God is near. The ultimate vanquishing of the destructive effects of sin's reign over the earth is Jesus' overthrow of death. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, the widow's son, and his friend Lazarus. In so doing, Jesus demonstrates more than his divine power. He is showing that he has come to overthrow the brokenness and havoc spread through all of creation by sin. Every part of human culture and the created order are to be redeemed by his power and rule. The arrival of the new order brought to earth by King Jesus is further manifested by his power over Satan's kingdom. In Matthew 12, 26 and following, for example, Jesus interprets his own mission to be the invasion of Satan's kingdom. The strong man is being bound so his house may be plundered. Not only does Jesus repeatedly cast out demons, but he empowers his disciples to show that the kingdom is near by casting out demons. We read the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan's fall from heaven is the beginning of the end for the devil's kingdom. 
The righteous kingdom of God has invaded earth. Jesus' exorcisms are not merely proof that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Jesus himself said their significance was in proving that the kingdom of God had come. Jesus was reluctant to publicly identify himself as the Messianic king because nearly everyone in his culture misunderstood the nature of the Messianic king and his kingship and who the real enemy that needed to be overthrown was. That is sin, not Rome. But in his trial before Pilate, Jesus finally clearly admitted to his kingship. We read, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Despite his reluctance to publicly use the word king, Basileus, to identify himself as the king of the kingdom he was inaugurating, Jesus did clearly identify himself as the king of the coming messianic kingdom by taking to himself the title Son of Man. As the Geneva Study Bible points out, quote, the expression Son of Man is used 69 times by the Synoptic Gospels, that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 12 times in the Gospel of John to refer to Christ, the Messiah. It is the title Jesus most often used for himself. Now listen to Daniel's prophecy about Christ, the Messiah, who is of divine origin, coming on the Shekinah glory cloud, speaking to God the Father, who is called the Ancient of Days. We read Daniel seven thirteen through 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In Jesus' teaching, the coming of the Son of Man is synonymous with the coming of the kingdom of God. Thus, Jesus' frequent references to himself as the Son of Man is a claim to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Messianic King who would recover Adam's lost kingdom and establish the High King's righteous rule over earth. As we move toward seeing what implications this understanding of Christ as a warrior has, it is important to remember that this divine kingly rule descending from heaven as King Jesus arrives is not the sovereign rule of God, but his preceptive rule. God has always ruled sovereignly over the earth. The kingdom inaugurated by King Jesus is the new heaven and new earth to be established by his overthrow of Satan's sin and death. That kingdom is the realm where there will be submission to the righteous standard of the high king. Christ's kingdom is being manifest to whatever degree Christ's righteous agenda is being followed in each sphere of life on planet Earth. At the very core of Christ's identity, he is the warrior who has come to overthrow sin, fixed everything broken by sin, and established his kingdom of righteousness. Though he will not complete this process until his final return, Jesus' identity as a warrior has enormous implications for his followers. 
disciples follow their master and totally embrace their master's cause. So here are just two implications of our master being a warrior. First, Christ's followers are to seek first God's righteousness. Tragically, this calling to righteousness, to seek it, is often missed because it sounds like many wrong approaches to Christianity. It sounds like works righteousness, trying to save ourselves by our works. It sounds like moralism, thinking we can earn God's love and favor by our works. It sounds like legalism, being like the Pharisees and nitpicking and focusing on external outward performance instead of a heart of righteousness. But that's a misunderstanding. In the fourth beatitude, Jesus teaches us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not the imputed righteousness of our justification, but righteousness of character. The righteousness he commands us to seek means allowing his word to penetrate and transform our hearts, and then seeking to establish Christ's agenda in every area of our lives. Being a warrior like Jesus means fighting, striving against, struggling to combat sin in our own lives through his resurrection power. The second implication of Christ being a great warrior is that Christ followers are called to intentional prayer warfare. Right now, Jesus is interceding that his kingdom of righteousness will prevail over the kingdom of darkness. In a sense, he has already broken Satan's back, disarming, Colossians 2.15, Satan, guaranteeing that when Christ returns, Satan and sin will be destroyed. But in another sense, we are called in this age to join with Jesus in his intercession that his kingdom of righteousness will prevail over earth. He taught us, remember, to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is where righteousness prevails. How might God be leading you to pray? Following Paul's example from Ephesians 3 asking that God may grant your loved one to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in that loved one's heart through his or her faith. May our eyes be open to see what a mighty warrior Jesus was and fight for the defeat of evil and the restoration of wholeness, rightness over planet earth for the honor of the earth's rightful king. To summarize this episode, from the day God said the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head in Genesis 3, to the end of Revelation, the word Messiah describes a warrior who overthrows the usurpation of Adam's throne by Satan's sin and death. Though he has won the decisive victory at the cross, he is still engaged in that battle. But neither political nor military might are his weapons. Rather, it is by those who are in Christ, surrendering to Christ's kingship in their heart loyalties, their heart attitudes, and working for the restoration of all of life to wholeness in the resurrection power of Christ. 
For further prayerful thought, number one, identify three or four reasons why we don't usually default to Jesus' nature as being that of a warrior. See your show notes for further questions. Our past podcast highlight is Responding to the Argument that the Bible Teaches Patriarchy, Season 1, Episode 33, from June 21st, 2020, not 21. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that seeks to help them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.